following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, November 22nd, 2020, on the basis of Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. There are two truths going into this lesson that I think we need to know. We are the worst judges of ourselves, and we are the worst judges of each other. By that I mean that we often tend to judge ourselves by the good things that we do and pin on others the negative that we see in them. That's how we sum them up. In other words, as other people have put it better, we judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. Now clinically, that's known, that could be known as negativity bias. That's what it's called, and it's that human tendency to let an ounce of negativity spoil a pound of positivity. From the other end, from the personal end, that's called illusory superiority. The idea that because you can judge yourself from your own point of view, because you're the only person who truly knows you, at least in your own mind, that you're morally better than the people who you're not. And it's this sort of thing that sends us, you know, when somebody gives us a negative comment on our performance, it sends us sprinting to defend ourselves with all the good we do, while all, to, all the while honing in on the flaw in somebody else. And of course, we have to advertise the good we do because, well, if we don't, nobody else is going to. It creates this vicious cycle, but that vicious cycle is an integral clause of this unwritten social contract that we all live under. And while we're bickering over whether reality lies between our perspectives on good or evil, Jesus presents a totally different reality. He's going to be the judge of everyone, he says. He's going to show up on Judgment Day on his throne and be the judge of all nations and individuals. And if there were any place in Scripture that we could point to, to say that your good works are going to get you into heaven, I imagine this is the one. And yet when we look deeper into the illustration that Jesus gives us, we see that he's presenting, he's not just painting a simple picture of good and bad. He will be the judge of individuals. And those individuals both do good things and bad things. And yet he doesn't place them on a spectrum of good and bad. He divides them into just two groups, sheep and goats, and their reaction of each group to his judgment speaks volumes about why that judgment was made. And so suddenly, when you realize that this is not, that we don't see Judgment Day as an event where God gathers up the holy and brings them in and puts out the wicked, but a day when God sends away those who reject him and gathers those who belong to him. Now, if you look back at the, at the lesson from Daniel, Pastor pointed out that this is really the scene that Jesus is setting up. This is the scene that he's showing us today with the Son of Man sitting on his throne. And yet, historically, the whole account has been taken up by just two sentences in verses 32 and 33. So much that it's come to be known as the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's only natural because Jesus' original audience certainly knew what a shepherd was. They knew what shepherds did. They knew what they looked like. They were very familiar with the concept. So that little detail would have stuck. Shepherds would generally allow their goats and their sheep to graze together as one flock 
intermingled with each other, mulling around the same meadow. And the only reason that a shepherd would really have to separate them would be to count them, or more aptly for this parable, to take an accounting of them. So when Jesus, when the shepherd splits them into two groups, into sheep and goats, it's obvious what it's for. It's a day of reckoning. And I hope you you see how perfect this little mixture of metaphors is. So Jesus, the good shepherd, has finally become the king. The one who was a humble servant on earth is now Lord of all. And yet as he takes the highest throne there is, he maintains that care, that concern, that faithfulness that the good shepherd would show. And so he turns first to the sheep on his right, and he speaks, Come, inherit what has been prepared for you from the beginning of the world. Now when we conjure up images of what heaven's going to look like in our minds, one thing that often I think gets overlooked is the fact that earth was originally made in the beginning to be heavenly. God gave it to mankind as an inheritance and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so he gave man a perfect will and a perfect purpose so that God and man could live together in harmony, working and enjoying life forever. That peace, that purpose, that perfection that was found in Eden, is the, it's the world as it was meant to be. And it's the world that God is going to restore to his people when he says, come, inherit. But to the goats on his left, he turns and says, depart from me. And what's so unsettling about that is that while the world is still turning, while the sun is still shining on the wicked and the righteous alike, we are standing in God's presence. We are in God's presence right now. Out there, everybody driving on the road is, is standing in God's presence. And so when God tells these people, depart from me, go away from me, where do you go? Jesus doesn't mince words. He says, go to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that, that tells you a lot. It tells you that hell was not made for man, and man was not made for hell. And yet, when God says depart, he shows us that it's going to be the destination of everybody who, just like the devil, decided to pursue a good of their own design and definition apart from what God had defined and designed, and in the process, shipwrecked their souls. That's the real tragedy of hell, is that when God says depart, he's sending these people away to a place that they were never meant to go. But now after passing judgment, Jesus wastes no time telling them exactly why he's made his judgment. After he gives the verdict, he says, this is my reasoning. He lists hunger, thirst, homelessness, homelessness, nakedness, sickness, prison. Jesus says he's been through all of it. And the defining factor of each person in the crowd is whether they helped him out in his need. I was hungry and you fed me, or you didn't. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, or you didn't, and so on. We hear that refrain four times throughout this, this, this parable. And then the response goes up from both sides of the throne. It's all worded differently, but both responses essentially say the same thing. What did I do to deserve this? The sheep are baffled by their reward. The goats are confused by their punishment, and they just have to ask this question, Jesus, when did we see you? 
And so get it out of your head right away that your salvation hangs on whether or not you've shown charity to somebody who hasn't been on earth in almost 2,000 years. That kind of thinking is exactly what got the goats to where they are now. But you can tell from the goat's response that they would have absolutely jumped on the opportunity to help Jesus. I think we can all basically say the same. If, if you were out there right now and you saw Jesus walking along the sidewalk and you knew 100% that it was Jesus, I guarantee you that by the end of the hour he would be sitting at your kitchen table enjoying a nice lunch with you or a nice dinner. Maybe you'd even give him a place to sleep. You'd sleep in the living room and let Jesus have your bed. These people would have done the exact same thing. And why not? In his day, Jesus was the lovable loser, the popular poor, the, the big cause to gather around, the shabby chic, if you will. And so they certainly would have given him anything, food, drink, medicine, a bed, a visit, just conversation. They would have given all that to him. And I mean, even the Pharisees, Jesus' longtime rivals, regularly invited this wandering prophet into their house to have a meal with them. Not necessarily because they liked him, but because if you could put the Jesus merit badge on your charity sash, well, that was major street cred for you. For them, Jesus was a hot commodity, and charity had become a business transaction. But for us, where is the charity that you can't do with your camera phone out? Where is the kindness that gives you nothing back, or maybe even takes away from your reputation a little bit? Where's the love of Christ in somebody who finds another sinner so repugnant or too self-destructive or unpopular or sin-stained to deserve our help? People from all walks of life, unbelievers and believers alike, like to, they love to point out this, this fact that Jesus, quote-unquote, hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And I say, yeah, yeah, he did. That was one of Jesus' defining factors. He loved these people who were defined by society as the trash of the community. As people, he loved people who were too sin-stained for decent people to even consider looking at. And so I ask you, and I ask everyone out there, decent person, where's your limit? Does your kindness bottom out when somebody has sinned their way into poverty? Does the love of God end where maximum security prison walls begin? There's a deadly temptation in our world to let society dictate the boundaries of our kindness, to dictate who deserves our help. And it's completely rooted in selfishness. But how dare... I play judge over the troubles and sins of another when Jesus put his name on me. Even me, who God could and should have considered too sin-stained, too unworthy, too low, too undesirable to even consider thinking about. Jesus sends these goats away with their brand of kindness because if they're not going to belong to him, they can belong to themselves. And in doing so, their sin will define them. We're not, we're not immune to this sort of prejudice. It's, that's just a, a natural part of the sinful human nature. And yet that's what makes 
this whole scene so interesting. In spite of their best efforts not to be, the goats are called unrighteous. And yet, in spite of their sins, the sheep are called righteous. I imagine that the goats didn't squander or reject every opportunity to be kind or show charity. And I also imagine that the sheep certainly didn't take every opportunity to be kind. I know myself, you know yourselves, we've all passed up opportunities to show the love of God to another person. And yet knowing that, when we listen to Jesus' judgments again, we only hear the good deeds of the sheep. There's no mention of their flaws or their sins or their neglected opportunities because those who belong to God are not going to be defined by those moments, but by what they've done with the grace of God. Judgment Day is often rightfully accompanied by this, this picture of God opening up a book and reading out all of your deeds for everybody to hear. We saw it in, briefly in the Daniel 7 reading. And even for Christians, that's unsettling to think about the fact that God can open up a book and, and, and read out everything you've done in detail greater than even you can. He knows your sins. He's got them written down. That's terrifying. And it becomes all the more trivial and all the more terrifying at the same time when you consider that God already knows all these things. Before he announces them, before he cracks open his book to scan through all your deeds or search through his files to find out what you've done, it's already in his mind. He already knows. And so why don't I fear that day? Why do we take heart as we await his return? We do it because our shepherd once grazed with us as a sheep. We do it because our king once lived by our side as a brother. And so now the judge of all becomes our savior. And when he looks at us, he doesn't see the sins that he's saved us from. He only sees saints saved from sin from the greatest to the least. The thought of all our sins being read out loud all at once probably makes you consider everything you've done, the good, the bad, the ugly. And as your mind runs over sin after sin and you sink lower and lower, you, so you come to realize that we are the least. But then we open the Gospels and it hits us even harder that for us, for the least, Jesus became the least and less than the least. My God left his throne to live, die, and live again among his enemies so that by his grace, through faith, we might become his friends. And so how can I, the chief of sinners, ever look at somebody else and say, you're beneath me, you're less than me, when Jesus became less than me. My Savior knew hunger and thirst, even though he could feed thousands. He knew the restlessness of the homeless, even though he welcomed everybody. He knew sickness, even though he healed. He was falsely accused and imprisoned and murdered on a cross, not because he was weak, but because he wanted his people to truly live free, free to do good to each other. And yet he became the least 
so that by faith I might not turn the least of my neighbors away. So think about that when love seems unprofitable or care and kindness inconvenient. Personal charity is going to cost us time and money, and as Christians, it might even cost us some reputation. But when we see our Savior's face in every single person that we serve, we understand that all we are doing is freely giving to others the grace of God that has freely been given to us. So let that selflessness of Christ be the basis for your service, and you will produce a purer, greater form of, of love than you could ever produce without him. And because the grace of Jesus is evident in it, God sees that as an acceptable sacrifice, and he will proudly read it aloud on the last day. I tend to cringe a little bit when I hear someone utter the phrase, you're going to heaven, because I never hear it in a way that doesn't just sound a little bit naive or smack of a little bit of sarcasm. People usually aren't that blunt and sweet about it, but we can generally tell how society felt about a person based on how they're talked about after they die. If it was somebody that we generally agree was good, well then they're, they're at peace. They're up there. They're with their spouse again. But if, if it's somebody that we don't like, somebody that everybody agrees was a bad guy, well then we're a little more blunt. He's in hell for sure. And what's our basis for that? What, what makes society think that they can say that, that they can dictate who gets into God's house? Society doesn't get to make that choice about who gets to God's house any more than I get to decide who goes into your house. Because we don't get to decide what the basis for judgment is. God makes those choices. But our Savior knows his own. He knows their sins and he's forgotten them in his grace. Let that grace color every interaction you have from the greatest to the least. Amen. Thank you.